Thank you, Pastor Marlene. I'm always blessed by your prayers. Good morning, church, wherever church is for you this morning. As uh, the church is gathered in your home or as the church is gathered in a, in a friend's home or in your office or sitting in front of your computer, wherever you have found yourself today, I pray that uh, God will pour his blessings into what happens in your house as he pours his blessings into what happens in the church. This will, uh, I know, be watched throughout the day today and uh, the week ahead. And if that is one of where you find yourself, I, uh, I, I'm praying this morning that that same Holy Spirit that leads here and leads live will continue to flow through you wherever you catch uh, the ministry of the Word today. Um, today we're going to be looking at the book of Jonah. I want to give you a, me- a, a minute to find it. If you're new to the Bible, I, hear, hear, I, I did something I rarely do. I looked at the numbers on the pages in my Bible. And, uh, and I want you to say, to say Jonah is 55 of those really thin Bible kind of pages, which are, you never have in any other books. 55 of those back from the book of Matthew, you will find Jonah. Jonah is one of the, what are called the minor prophets. They're called minor not because they're of less importance, but simply because they're so small. Jonah's only four chapters. It's a, it's a story most people, people even who are not acquainted with the Bible at all, will know the story or at least a piece of the story of Jonah. Everyone knows about Jonah and the whale, Jonah and this big fish, Jonah getting swallowed and surviving it. And uh, it's been one of those interesting things. People who want to uh, sort of take shots at the Bible, they'll say, well, how could a guy survive being swallowed by a fish? Well, it's, it's clearly in this text described as miraculous. It's not trying to say that this is an everyday occurrence. It has happened once that we know of in history. <clears throat> a guy fell off a whaling ship, got actually swallowed by the whale, and uh, they then captured the whale cut the whale open, and there was Jim inside, from inside the whale. He literally had survived being swallowed by a whale. Now, it was probably only, uh, you know, maybe an hour or two that he was inside and survived. But Jonah's in the belly of the whale three days. Jesus will use this very description as for how long he will be in the earth. He says to those questioning him, the Pharisees in the New Testament, he says to them, the only sign that I will give you is the sign of Jonah. Jonah's three days in the belly of the fish. Jesus was three days in the tomb. And that, that becomes part of what takes Jonah into the New Testament story. Um, the author here, and I believe the author is Jonah, is, is telling us things that only he could tell us. Um, and he's telling us, reflecting from an end of a book that ends very sort of unsatisfactorily. The book of Jonah doesn't end with a bang. It doesn't end with a flourish. It doesn't end with a, a, a victory. I, I, I don't like movies like this. You know those movies that leave you kind of to figure it out at the end? I know that the movie critics are like, oh, great, they let me figure it out in the end. I'm like, no, resolve the problem. Don't leave me hanging with, I don't know whether this guy lives, dies. I don't know whether this guy succeeds or fails. I want the happy ending. Thank you very much. That's why people watch movies. We do not invest an hour, hour and a half in some event to not see it come to some conclusion. So if any of you out there are going to be making movies, just remember, don't do it. It's a bad idea to leave me hanging. Jonah leaves you hanging. At the end of this book, you don't know the outcome. But the fact that the book exists infers the outcome. The fact that we get this report from this guy tells us something about what happens to him at the end. A few observations I want you to start out with. 
Number one, God is God and I am not. Very important observation, a very important thing to remember. God is God and I am not. We live in a world where people are literally becoming their own God. They're becoming their own idol. People are literally saying, it's my mind, my heart, what I think, what my, what my, my truth is, is what's important. And I have people tell me things like, it's, that's your truth and I just want to scream, no, it's not mine. There is truth and there is error and truth isn't decided by humans. But I get that. People get that. People say that. You are not God. God is God. So start with Jonah in that place. God is God. He is not. God is God. And I am not. Grace. Grace is the unmerited favor of God for someone. Grace is good. No matter whether it happens to you or your worst enemy. Grace is a good thing no matter upon whom it falls. I do not have enough understanding of what's going on in the universe to really justify being angry with God. I do not have... This is a tough one because I know some folks carry anger toward God throughout their life. Something horrible happened to them. And I, I get that. Horrible things happen in nearly every life. Some things are more horrible than others, and people carry forward that anger. And I know that God feels compassion, and I know that God cares about that that pain, and I know that God cares about that event, but we do not understand enough about the universe to carry anger toward God. And I am telling you, it will kill you. It will eat you. It will not help. We do not understand enough about the universe to be angry with God. And I must trust Him even when I disagree with Him. I must trust God even when I disagree with Him. With those, with those beginnings, God is God and I am not. Grace is good even when it happens to your enemy. I don't understand the universe well enough to be angry with God and I must trust God even when I'm not sure about His decision when I disagree with what he's saying. Um, would you join me once more for a word of prayer? Lord, as we open your word, we pray a special, bountiful outpouring of your spirit on us. That the things we study, the things we gather from here will not be ours, will be, will, will, but will be yours. That your Holy Spirit will lead and not the preacher. In your name we pray. Amen. So the part of Jonah that I want to read is actually a little bit into the book. It's chapter 3 through the beginning of chapter 4. That's where I want to start us today. Jonah has been called to preach to Nineveh. And chapter 3 begins with, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. So get this is a second time. It's happened to him before. Saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it a message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. And now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in its extent. People have said, well, I don't know about this. I don't know about this story. Until recently, until actually the last hundred years, which is fairly recent in biblical history, they started to discover that the real size of the city, the real scope of the city, 
And as they began to, to unlock it, they started to look at how big it was. People said, well, you know, the Bible says there are 120,000 people. There. No city at that era, at, in that era was that large. <clears throat> Not true. This city is plenty large enough to hold 120,000 people inside the city walls. The three-day extent of a journey means that if you're going to walk through the city and see this city, it's going to take you three days of walking up and down streets. The city is plenty big enough for that to have been the case. And so this, the idea they're trying to convey in, this, in, in ancient times how you would know a city was large. It's big. It's really big. How do I know it's really big? Because it would take three days to cover all of the roads in the city, to wander the streets of the city. And that's what the text is trying to tell us. It's a very large city for its time. Nineveh is founded right after Babylon. According to Scripture, after the Tower of Babel, Nineveh is founded right away. It's on the Tigris River. Tigris and Euphrates come down like this out of the mountains in what would be called southern Turkey, northern Iraq. And as they come down, they join at the foot almost uh, down at the Arabian Sea. The Tigris is the one to the east. The Euphrates is the one to the west. It's on that eastern river, the Tigris River. The city you've probably heard of that is near it, it's actually just a few miles away, is Mosul, the modern city in Iraq. You know, there was a lot of fighting around Mosul. Mosul is now where the river has moved. The river, river has moved away from its ancient bed, and now where it is presently is where the city of Mosul is. And Nineveh is out in the desert. Nineveh is out away from the city's bank, where we find the ruins of Nineveh. So the people of Nineveh, oh, and Jonah began to enter the city the first day and walk. And then he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God. And they proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth, sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. And the word of the, of the Lord came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he, caused, and he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king, the nobles saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his vile and evil ways and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? This is one of the greatest victory stories in the text. In all of the Bible, this is one of the greatest stories of success of a prophet going into a city in all of the Bible. Anything that you can remind, remember in the Bible. This guy goes into this massive evil city. It is known for its violence, known for its, how evil it is. It is recognized as one of the worst places for people who want to follow God to actually be. It is also one of the cities that the people of Israel are going to end up in exile in. I believe that God is sending Jonah ahead of them for two reasons. One, to rescue them, and two, to prepare a way for the people of Israel to survive. The northern ten tribes, will, many of them will end up in this city, in Nineveh. He succeeds in getting the entire city to repent. So, imagine if somebody was called to preach in San Francisco. Okay? One of y'all gets called to preach in San Francisco. God says, I want you to go and preach in San Francisco. And you begin to wander the streets of San Francisco. 
and you start saying in San Francisco, in 40 days, God is coming. And in 40 days, he's going to destroy the city. You need to repent. And if the mayor of San Francisco came out to the microphones that evening after hearing about this, or two or three days later, and he says, okay, we need to, we need to change the way we're going about our business. All those of you who are in illicit business, you stop. Evil business, stop. Bad behavior stops. All of this, all of these evil things that are natural for us to do are going to stop. Those of you who are cheating people, stop. Those of you who are harming people, stop. All of it stops. Get on your sackcloth and your ashes or whatever the modern equivalent is. We're all going to proclaim a fast. We're not going to eat. We're not going to drink in the hopes that God will relent. Relenting is like repenting. It's just turn away from it. It'll change his mind. It'll go in a different direction about this. And everybody decided to do it. If the whole city and county of San Francisco, which is one thing, converted at one time, wouldn't it be marvelous? Nineveh is the, is the capital city of the country of Nineveh. So the prophet goes instead to Washington, D.C., and he walks the streets of Washington, D.C., and, and the same thing happens. Everyone decides to repent. Everyone decides to stop doing the evil that they've been up to. Every politician starts speaking the truth. Every person in Washington starts behaving appropriately. And they proclaim a fast and they wait and they say, we will, we will fast and pray until God relents. And he does. Wouldn't the whole nation celebrate? That's what Jonah did. So what would you expect? If you haven't read the story, what would you expect the next, story, next part of the story to be? The next part of the story in my imagination is Jonah doing backflips down the streets of Nineveh, so excited for what has happened, praising God for, what's, for all the transformation that's taken place. But it's not. It's the weird twist in the story. Our guy Jonah is not happy at all. Verse 10 of chapter 3 says, Then God saw the works, that they turned from their evil ways, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. And so he prayed to the Lord, in his anger, and said, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore, now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. I can't believe you saved all these people. Just kill me now. It's like, what is wrong with you, man? What's happening in your head? So now I want to back the story up to the beginning. To that part of the story everyone knows. He gets this assignment before. The story starts out with him being sent to Nineveh. He decides not to go. In fact, the Bible says he goes down to the port of Joppa. It's still there today. You can go visit Joppa when you're in Israel. He goes down to the port of Joppa. He finds a ship headed for Tarshish. We don't actually know where Tarshish is. I did some research this week. I think Spain is the best qualifier for Tarshish. Some people think it may have been as far away as England. I think they're in a little bit of a fairy tale land. 
There are others that think it's in another place out in the, out in the Mediterranean. But he's supposed to go northeast. And instead, he goes straight west. He's getting as far away from the call as he possibly can. God has called him to do something, and he's refusing to do it. He gets out in the middle of the ocean with a bunch of unsuspecting sailors, and this big storm comes up. As the storm comes up, starts battering the ship. They're unloading. They're trying to lighten the ship to make it ride the waves better. They're trying to settle the, some way that they might survive the storm. The storm gets rougher and rougher. They find him sleeping in the bottom of the boat. Do you remember somebody else sleeping in the bottom of a boat? Jesus slept in the bottom of the boat. I don't know why he's asleep. Jesus slept on faith. He's just dead. He's out. He's asleep. They go down and wake him up. He actually calls him the sleeper when he wakes him up. Get up, sleeper. Get up and pray to your God. Maybe your God will save us. He wakes up. He, he does. And they're still not getting anywhere. They cast lots to see whose fault it is that this big storm has come in. Stop. The lots land on Jonah. They turn to Jonah and say, what did you do, man? How come God is so mad at me? Because in a pagan understanding of how the world works, the gods get angry because you didn't do the right thing. And you appease them by doing whatever it is that they want you to do. So they ask that question. And modern believers today have a really hard time staying out of this ditch. They ask the question, what do we have to do to you to make your God stop doing this to us? So what bargain do we have to strike with your God in order to get this thing fixed. Christians do this all the time. Believers in grace do this all the time. What do I have to do, God, to get you to fix what I want you to fix? What do I have to do, God, to manipulate your behavior to get this thing straightened out that I want straightened out? Jonah gives them the answer. No one asks God. No one prays about this. No one says, what should we do now? You know what the simplest answer to this question is? Take me back to Joppa. The simplest answer for Jonah is to take me back to Joppa. Just take me back to where I came from. Repentance means turn around and go the other direction. Turn around and go back to God's direction. That would have been the obvious answer. You want to stop the whole mess, just go back to Joppa and drop me off and you'll be fine. Instead, Jonah throws out another suicidal behavior. Did you catch this? This first throw me in the ocean thing is a suicidal statement. Just throw me in the ocean. God will be fine. Jonah is claiming that God desires human sacrifice in order to solve this problem. The Bible is clear God does not require human sacrifice. What is wrong with Jonah? What's cool is God is prepared. You see, God sees the end from the beginning, and he sees stupid before it gets there. So he knows what Jonah's going to do. He knows Jonah's mistakes. He gets ready. The Bible says God prepared a fish. So this Jonah in the whale story... Bible doesn't say it was a whale. The Bible says God prepared a fish. God prepared a submarine for Jonah to take him on a little trip for a while. So when he heads into the water, fish comes up and swallows him. I love the cartoon versions of this. It's always this giant sort of outsized, looks, like looks kind of like a house with a little tail on the back of it fish. It swallows him down. Jonah's in there. One cartoon I saw had Jonah in there with a little campfire cooking some of the fish that came in with him. <laughs> you know, whatever, you, whatever your imagination does, Jonah's in the belly of the fish. Jonah, when he's in the belly of the fish, gets religion. Jonah in the belly of the fish sounds like a New Testament author. He writes this long poem. I just want to read you the last little bit of it. 
When my soul fainted, this is chapter 2, verse 7. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. So the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out on dry land. Jonah gets an understanding of grace while he's in the fish. It's the only way out. God's going to have to rescue me. And I am not meritorious. I am not meriting it. Even though he says, if you save me, I will... He's still bargaining. If you save me, I will, I will, I will commit to my vows. If you save me, I'll do what I have vowed. He's still bargaining. But his, his last comment, salvation is from the Lord. Now, same guy gets the message, go to Nineveh, walks the streets, walks the streets. Forty days and the city's going to be destroyed. Forty days and the city's going to be destroyed. Forty days and the city's going to be destroyed. He has no, as my wife calls it, hooks in this. He doesn't love these people. He's not preaching in Nineveh for, for the salvation of Nineveh. He's preaching in Nineveh to do what God told him. He is not doing this out of motivation to save these people. You can tell by the way he reacts. He doesn't care about these people. He could care less if these people live or die. He's just here on an assignment. Okay, everybody, here's the, stu- here's the news, here's the news. Extra, extra, read all about it, 40 days and you're all going to die. Extra, extra, read all about it, come buy your copy, 40 days and you're all going to die. It's, this, it's not at all a heart message from Jonah. It is just fulfilling what he said he would do. This is the thing about God. This is the thing about God. The message of God is empowered by God, not by the preacher. And we really have to know this. We preachers especially have to know this. But we who are watchers of preachers, we who are followers of preachers, preacher have their own, ha, preachers have their own little kind of uh, groupy people. I'm one of them. I, I watch preachers. I follow preachers. But the message of God is not empowered by the preacher. It is empowered by God. And so Jonah with his half-hearted you're all going to die. Hey, you know what? All you, you're all going to die. Extra, extra. Read all about it thing. doesn't matter. Because the power is the message from God, not the preacher's voice. And so he finishes his walk through the city, and that's when the part I began to read to you. The city goes into an immediate response. Across the whole city, 120,000 people... God describes them as 120,000 people who don't know their right from their left. They're just ignorant. They're just ignorant. They don't know up and down. They don't know left and right. They, They know nothing about God. They're completely bereft of information. Go and tell them. He tells them. They start to this this massive citywide repentance. And the God of grace who met Jonah in the whale says, all right, I will take that. I will take it, and I will rescue your city. And the people of Nineveh 
find the grace of God for themselves. They turn things around. It becomes a different place. And all around, remember this is the capital of this empire. And all around the people of Nineveh is this, this reverberation of what happened there. This guy Jonah came in. This guy Jonah preached and, and it transformed our city. It's a better place. You can move back in. There, there's a lot less crime. There's a lot less trouble. Things are not as bad as they were. In fact, they're so much better. It's a great place for you to come and live. And people are coming as, as, as sort of tourists to see the change in Nineveh from all around the empire. Look at what's going on. Look at what's happened. Look at the kings even being humble. Look at these people. That guy used to shoot at me when I came into town. That guy used to pick my pocket. Look at all this. They're all being nice to each other. They're being nice to us. They're prospering and blessing because the blessing of God is on them. Isn't that amazing? And here sits our guy Jonah. He's gone up on a hill. He sat down in hopes that they'll do something wrong. And God will still destroy the city. He's picked himself a nice spot above the city. He said, God, I knew, I knew, I knew that you were going to do this. I knew you were going to disappoint me and let these people off. I knew that you were going to save them instead of destroy them. But just in case they mess that up, I'm going up on the hill. Because he believes the whole thing is about a bargain with God. He believes the whole thing is about a bargain with God. It's why he's been thrown into the water. It's why he's promised a vow in order to have salvation. And it's why he's pretty sure that these people are going to mess this up. And then God's going to get them. So he goes up and he sits there. Builds himself a little shelter. And he watches. What's going to happen? And God, in his grace and in his ever-present desire to train us has the, old te- the, the King James calls it a gourd has a plant grow up and shade him, grows up into his structure he's got this, this I, 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 I picture this little pergola over him and there grows this plant into his little pergola flowers and big leaves and he's cooled by the plant and the shade and it seems like a little companion to him and it grows up all in one day, boom, it's there, it's great and then God still trying to teach Jonah what this is about, sends a worm who starts eating away at the plant. And the plant begins to wither. And then God sends this east wind, this wind out of the east. Remember, an east wind there is coming off the desert. So it's this dry, hot wind coming off the desert. The plant withers and it's just gone, gone. It's done. And Jonah's sitting there up in his perch waiting for something to happen to Nineveh. And he's become miserable. It's hot. It's dry. His little plant friend just died. And he's so angry. And God says, is it okay for you to be angry? Second time God asks, is it all right for you to be angry when I just was gracious? And now he's saying, is it okay for you to be angry because a plant died? Yes! He sounds like a a second grade kid to me. He's just stomping his feet. Yes, yes, I'm angry. And I have a right to be angry because my plant died. It's your fault. Yeah. In fact, it is. But Jonah, there are 120,000 people in this town, in this city, who are so ignorant of God, they don't know their right from their left. And they are all turning to me. You're worried about a plant? I'm worried about a city. 
You're worried about this inconsequential, grew up in a day and died in a day experience. And I'm worried about 120,000 people plus whatever other animals and things are in this city. This is what I care about, Joe. And the story just ends there. Should I not pity Nineveh, this great city, in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left? And we don't get any kind of response. We're left with that question not just going through Jonah's heart, but echoing through the ages into yours and mine. The question is about priorities. Jonah, are you more concerned about your own comfort than 120,000 people who, who are dying for lack of information? I mean, literally dying for lack of information. They're, they're evil, but part of the root of that is just simple ignorance. They don't know. And now they're turning back to me. And Jonah, you're the guy. You're the best person I have to go back into that city and teach them about me. And you're sitting up here whining about a plant. Your priorities are all off. It's an interesting thing that Jonah twice in this book would rather die than continue what he's doing. You, you know when you get to the, that end? Tim, Timothy Keller enlightened me on this. Tim shared a, a, a message that he preached on Jonah. And Timothy Keller made a point in here that I thought was extremely clear, clarifying. He says you come to the point where you're willing to quit it all and give up your life when the thing you've lost feels like it was your life. You come to the point where you're willing to give up on life when the thing you've lost feels like it was your life. And so now you have to back up in the story and say, well, what, what, what did he lose? What's the deal here? What's the, what's the point? The only thing that makes sense to me is that up until now, he has the superiority of knowing that his people are the people of God. And that the grace of God and the mercy of God has been given to Israel and that's why they're special. But if that can be handed over so easily to these horrible Ninevites, then what is he? And what is his superiority? And what does his relationship with God merit? God, if you can save them this easy, then what is Israel? What does it mean to be your chosen if you can choose these other guys? What does it mean to be special if everyone is special? If everyone's special, then no one's special. He's there at that point, willing to die rather than be the guy who teaches Nineveh and relieves their ignorance. And God says to him and to you and I, dude, what are your priorities? How concerned are you? How compassionate are you? Does your heart not feel anything for the lost? And I told you, I think that this 
story doesn't end the way I'd like it to, but the fact that we have the story tells us the end of the story. No one tells this kind of story about themselves unless God has gotten a hold of them and changed their heart. No one, no one tells a story that leaves them looking this bad unless God has changed the outcomes and they started to realize the victory of the, sac- of, of the gift that they were given. They start to realize from God's perspective that the saving of Nineveh was a, was a, a championship win. It was an all-star victory. It was one of the greatest things that's ever happened. He tells the story because of the outcome of his preaching, even though five minutes before, he hated the outcome of his preaching. I think the reason we have the book is because he's converted, truly converted in this moment. You know, they haven't dug up all of Nineveh. They've dug up parts of it, but they haven't been able to to do a full archaeological dig because there is a highly revered burial ground in Nineveh. It is traditionally known as the burial site of Jonah. If it is in fact, then it is likely that Jonah stayed. There's 120,000 people here who don't know their right hand from their left. Isn't it appropriate that I, God, have pity, have feel, feel towards them merciful, mercifully? I love Arthur Gordon's book. Man, I just forgot the title, so forget that. Maybe I wrote it down. It's, it's a, a book that's been around for many, many years. I've... Uh, I've read it and read it until I have two copies because the first copy is so beat up. It's a a book of short stories. Very well written. He's a great, great writer. And it's story after story about his life and his experiences throughout life. And he tells the story of being in Malaga, Spain. It's on the eastern coast of Spain down towards Gibraltar. Malaga is a very old city. It's the Phoenicians were the founders of Malaga. So it's, it's, it's part of the, the true history of all of Spain. He tells of being there with some friends who was in college, and they were traveling together, and they were looking for a cheap place to stay, and they stayed in the equivalent of a hostel. But it's, it's really a family home. It's, a, it's a, a European thing where today it's like a VRBO. It's like renting out a room. It's like uh, you're, you know today you would get on the phone, you would punch in some things and end up sleeping in somebody's room for the night and paying them a hundred bucks. It's that kind of a deal, but it's years and years and years ago and it's been advertised and they find it and they get there and his, he and his three college buddies are there. And they said it was an interesting place. It was a nice place. It was a comfortable place, but it was weird. There was a vibe about it that was, it was just off-putting. It was, it was sad. It was hard and it was difficult and they, they, they kind of stayed to themselves and Finally, a, a maid who worked in the house told them this used to be a very happy house. The lady of the house, whom they'd seen, and she was all in black and always long-faced, is a concert pianist, and that, that grand piano used to be her thing. She played it all the time. It was wonderful. Her husband used to be one of the most gracious and gregarious people you've ever met, but they lost their son. 
And they have, they have suffered for years since then. And he can't encourage or cheer her up. And she walks around in black and mourning. And she hasn't touched that piano in, in all those years. And they're college kids. And they're dumb. And they go off and they're in town and they're fooling around and they get a little inebriated. And they come walking down the street toward the house and they're singing and they're enjoying things and they walk into the house and the piano jumps out at them and one of them who played the piano goes over, slides in onto the seat, lifts off the dust cover, opens it up and begins to play as Gordon describes it poorly, this grand piano. And the other two guys are joining him in the song and they're all singing and, and laughing and there they are in the midst of this home that has been broken for so long. Just breaking the silence. And they're not aware that the first person back in the room is a young lady who takes care of the house, who sees them, and she covers her face. The husband comes from another part of the house, and he w comes in, and he just stunned, he stops. Because as he comes in, this tall figure in all black slides into the picture. And she first looks at the appalling picture of three young college boys beating up her piano, making a horrible noise. And he says, we all stopped, sobered by the moment. They look at her, and they see her face and the shock that's on it. And then a, a change takes place. And the shock breaks into a smile, and her eyes light up a little bit. She walks over to the piano, and they have no idea what she's going to do next. But she slides this college student off the bench. And she begins to play. And she plays. And she plays. And she plays. In the moment that we, when she could have easily and rightfully condemned them and kicked them out into the street, compassion welled up in her for them. And in that moment of compassion, she did what she couldn't do for all those years. She came and joined their silly little celebration. And that moment of compassion, it did more than just get them off the bullseye. That moment of compassion 
opened her heart up a bit. Compassion has a way of changing the compassionate. A practice of compassion in your life lightens your life. It lifts you. It changes your heart. And you look at people and you look at life and you enjoy and you embrace things differently if you let compassion be part of you. I believe that the end of the story, the peace that we don't have in here, is the awakening of compassion in Jonah. That finally he realizes the value of this 120 thousand people. He begins to feel for the souls who are lost in Nineveh. And it changes him. And I believe on resurrection morning when Jesus comes to raise those who are covered by his grave. In that mausoleum that celebrates Jonah's presence in Nineveh will awaken an old prophet and a few hundred thousand people that he's told about Jesus because he learned to love them. Being angry at God will dry up your heart. Being compassionate will pour water on your belly. Let's pray.